The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address multiple problems in the church of God in Corinth and to answer some practical questions that the church had sent to the Apostle. I want you to listen to how Paul speaks in this letter of some of their problems. Chapter 1, verse 11. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Chapter 3, verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Chapter 4, verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In chapter 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, knowing the sorts of things that Paul is going to say in this letter, if you were in Paul's position and needed to say these things in a letter, where would you start? Perhaps you would start the letter by bringing up one of their problems. Or perhaps you would start the letter by expressing that you are very concerned. But that is not where the Apostle Paul starts. He starts very intentionally by, first of all, identifying himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the calling and will of God, and secondly, by identifying his recipients as the church of God in Corinth, and speaking of their perfect position in Christ. This is Paul's approach in all of his letters to the churches. Uh, he uh, begins in speaking of their perfect position in Christ, or, or Christ's work for their salvation, before he go- gives any instruction. He always speaks of the, the benefits that they have received in the gospel before he tells them how to live. This is so important that I want you to see it for yourselves. Turn with me to, back to Romans chapter 1. Let's see how Paul begins. Romans, let's see how he begins with very early on, with what God has done in Christ for the church. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, 
and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of the gospel. He speaks of how those that he is writing to have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. How they are loved by God and are called to be saints. That's where he begins. Turn over to 2 Corinthians to see the same sort of thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now when he writes 2 Corinthians, there are great problems. There's great problems with false apostles who are seeking to turn the church away from Christ, from the true Christ, the Christ that was proclaimed by the apostles, turn them away from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in, at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. He addresses the church as the church of God. He speaks of the comfort that we receive from God through the gospel, through, through Christ, before he ever gets into any instruction. Turn over to Galatians. One more book to the right, Galatians chapter 1. Paul is greatly concerned about this church as there are false teachers who are teaching a false gospel and it appears that the Galatians are starting to embrace the false gospel. Look how he starts though. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the churches who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's his starting point. Reminding them that Christ gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. The work of Christ for our salvation. Turn over to Ephesians. Another book to the right. Ephesians chapter 1. We see the same thing. Paul never jumps into giving his instruction immediately. He always begins with benefits that we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ, God's work for our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on and elaborates upon that, speaking of these spiritual blessings that have been given to us in Christ. That's his starting point. Turn over to Philippians. Another book to the right. Philippians chapter 1. Same sort of thing. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Starting about starting with these blessings that are theirs in Christ Jesus. This work that Christ will certainly complete among them. Turn over to Colossians, another book to the right. Colossians chapter 1. How does Paul start this letter? Very similar. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. He starts with the gospel. He starts with the hope that is ours through the gospel. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians. Another book to the right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. You are loved by God. You are chosen in His grace for a salvation. Then one more, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Very similar. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The citizens of a heavenly kingdom, the citizens of Christ's kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We see the same sort of thing in 1 Corinthians. You can come back to our text, 1 Corinthians 1. We see the same sort of thing in 1 Corinthians. But if anything, it's even more pronounced here in 1 Corinthians. As Paul emphasizes here at the beginning of the letter, the Corinthians' perfect position in Christ in verse 2. Before we as Christians hear about the changes that are needed in our life, we need to be mindful of who we now are in our Lord and Savior. It is because we have been saved that we are instructed to live in the way that Paul lays out in this epistle. Changes are needed in our lives because our way of life is not always consistent with our new position in Christ. It is because we have been united to Christ that we now have uh, the desire and the ability to follow the instructions given to us in Scripture. If you and I do not have the position in Christ that is spoken of in our text, the teaching that Paul gives in this epistle will do us no more good than it would do for a stone. Paul is seeking to cultivate in us a Christian mindset at the very outset of this epistle. How needful it is that we as Christians would have and maintain this mindset. 
If we are not mindful of our position in Christ and the salvation that we have received in Him, our living is not Christian living. Christian living begins with Christian thinking. So with that said, let us look at our text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read all of verse 2 and verse 3. Please stand in honor of the Word of God. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We will see in this text four truths concerning who you are as a Christian in order that you may be mindful of these life-transforming truths. Four truths concerning who you are as a Christian in order that you may be ever mindful of these life-transforming truths. The first truth that we find in our text is that you have been sanctified in Christ. You have been sanctified in Christ. Having addressed this epistle to the church of God that is in Corinth, the apostle elaborates saying that the church consists of, quote, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Well, the New American Standard translates it well, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking of something that God did for us when we first believed in Christ Something that has continuing results. And this work of God is to be distinguished from God's ongoing work of sanctification throughout the Christian life in which God progressively conforms us to Christ's holy character. It's not that ongoing sanctification that he speaks of here. He speaks of something that occurred when we first believed in Christ. He's writing to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be made holy. That word holy means set apart. To be sanctified means to be set apart from the world and sin unto God and His service. For the Christian, there are past, present, and future aspects of our sanctification. This passage speaks of our past sanctification. It speaks of it as an event that occurred in the past when we first believed in Christ. The New Testament also speaks of a present sanctification, an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ. And the Bible speaks of a future aspect of sanctification when we are glorified with Christ and finally and completely conformed to that image. Our text speaks about our past sanctification that occurred instantaneously when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were united to Him. Now, how did this happen that we were sanctified? Well, observe what our text says in verse 2. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, we were sanctified by virtue of union with Christ Jesus. 
Through faith we were united to Him in His death and resurrection. By virtue of this union with Christ, we were set apart from the world and sin unto God and His servants. Now Paul says something similar when he talks in the book of Acts about the apostolic mission that Christ gave him. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 26, verses 17 through 18, specifically the part about being sanctified. He says, I am sending, he's quoting the, the, the words of the, the risen Christ that he spoke to Paul when Christ appeared to Paul and commissioned him as an apostle. Here's the words of Christ I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Or it could be translated, a a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Speaking about past sanctification. It says that we were sanctified by faith in Christ. That's Paul's understanding here in our text when he addresses the letter to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are sanctified by virtue of union with Christ through faith in Him. You see, when you first believed in Jesus, by God's grace you you were united to Christ. You were united to Christ in His death, so His death counts as the death that you owed for your sin, and united with Him in His resurrection. So His resurrection life is, is considered now your new life. And all of, all of Christ is shared with you. His righteousness is imputed to you. When you believed in Christ, you're united to Him. And at the same time, God sanctified you. He sanctified you in Christ Jesus. Now there are two sides to this past sanctification. And you need to understand both sides of our past sanctification. The first side is salvation from the dominion of sin. Salvation from the dominion of sin. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. So just one book to the left. Romans chapter 6 which gives us great teaching on this first side of our initial sanctification. It speaks on the salvation from the dominion of sin. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. Verse 6. We, that is, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our old self was crucified with Him, that is, with Christ, in order that the body of sin, that is, the flesh, that is, who we were in our sinful, fallen condition, who we are in sin apart from Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So through faith in Christ, we have been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ to sin. In this way, God has set us free from sin. He has set us free from the dominion of sin. He has set us free from the power of sin. Go on to verse 10. Verse 10. For the death that He died, that is, that Christ died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also 
must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is our new position in Christ. This is the result of initial sanctification. We are are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Go on to verse 17. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Note, when we were saved, we were set free from sin. It had power over us, it had dominion over us, and we were set free from that power and dominion when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we were sanctified by God. And then go down to verse 22. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That is progressive sanctification, the ongoing sanctification in the life of the believer. But now that you have been set free from sin, that initial sanctification, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to progressive sanctification. And its end is eternal life. You see, prior to being sanctified in Christ Jesus, you and I were slaves of sin. It was our nature to sin. Now, now God, God did not create Adam and Eve with a nature to sin, but when they fell into sin, when they rebelled against God, it plunged the whole human race into sin. And man's nature changed in the fall. We became sinners by nature. And so before we were saved, it was our nature to sin. We had no ability to truly obey God, no ability to truly please God. Sin was our master. Now we were not unwilling in this. We were very willing in this. We willingly submitted ourselves to sin. We willingly served sin. That's our fallen condition. Sin was our master. But when we first believed in Christ Jesus, the gospel says God set us free from sin's power. And this is half of what it means that God sanctified us in Christ Jesus. He saved us from the dominion of sin. He broke the power that sin had over us. The second side of initial sanctification is consecration unto God. Consecration unto God. When God sanctified us, He consecrated us unto God and His service. Now, the law of Moses gives various pictures of consecration. Please turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. I want to look at... A couple pictures of consecration. Exodus chapter 29. We read about the law of God in the book of Galatians chapter 3 that it was a guardian uh, to lead us to Christ, to prepare us to understand Christ and His redeeming work. 
In Exodus chapter 29, starting at verse 43, God is speaking here of the tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle. Verse 43, we read, There I will meet, that is, at, at the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel. And it, that is the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And when you read other parts of Exodus and Leviticus, um, some in, in Deuteronomy, you, you see more instructions for this consecration. The consecration of the tabernacle, the consecration of the altar, the consecration of the sons of Aaron who would serve as priests. God says, I will do this. I, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron and his sons. Also, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. What does this mean? That God would consecrate these things and these people. It means that God would set them apart exclusively for His service. He gave instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and God consecrated it. He set it apart from common use for His service, for His worship. Same thing with the altar. It was constructed by God's instructions, and then God consecrated it. He set it apart from common use for His service. Same thing with the priests. They were consecrated by God. They were set apart for the service of God. This is consecration. Now, the tabernacle being consecrated to God was not to be used for other purposes. Israel wasn't saying, okay, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use the tabernacle on the Sabbath day for the worship of God, but on the other six days of the week, we're going to use it for all kinds of other things. What a great tent we have to use for whatever our heart desires. No, it was consecrated. That means it was set apart from common use for one purpose only. The service of God. The worship of God. Now when God sanctified you in Christ Jesus, He not only freed you from sin's dominion, He also consecrated you unto His service so that you would no longer serve sin, but that you would serve God and God alone. Another word for consecrate is dedicate. God consecrated you. He dedicated you to His service. Now, this is amazing grace. Think of how amazing God's grace is in this. We were rebels against the great king who is completely holy and righteous and just and who is abounding in goodness and love, in whom there is no trace of evil. We were the rebels against God. We were the rebels against the great king. And in the great king's mercy and grace, he saved us and he set us apart to serve him in his royal court. That's grace. Set apart to serve Him? I was a rebel. Sin was my master. Rebellion was my master. I committed 
treason against the King of Kings. And yet He has redeemed me. He has saved me. He has put His grace and His mercy upon me. And He has set me apart from my old way of life to now serve Him who is worthy of the highest glory and honor. He has set me aside to serve Him. This is a privilege. This is grace that we've been set apart to serve our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. This is grace. The Apostle addresses the epistle to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is the initial act of God sanctifying the believer. Of making the believer holy. This initial sanctification launches God's ongoing work of sanctification in the believer's life. In which God progressively, over time, conforms the believer's way of life to Christ's holy character. Now, it is of critical importance that you understand the distinction between, on the one hand, this initial positional sanctification spoken of in our text, and the ongoing progressive sanctification that is spoken of elsewhere. And it's very important that you understand the order. First, it's this initial sanctification where we are freed from the dominion of sin and consecrated to God in His service. That comes first. Then comes the progressive sanctification. The being conformed as we we grow in obedience to the commands of Christ. That order is very, very important. The Christian pursues practical holiness not to enter a relationship with God or to earn His love, but because the Christian has already been set apart from sin unto God by God's grace through faith in Christ. And if you turn this around, if you change that order, you do not have Christianity. If you reverse that order, you have moralism, you have legalism, not Christianity. How wonderful is God's act of initial sanctification. Uh, Apart from it, any efforts on our part to grow in holiness would be ineffective and fruitless. This This act of God in initial sanctification is part of the necessary foundation for all growth in Christlikeness. Being freed from the dominion of sin and consecrated unto God for His service. This is the first truth in our text concerning who you are as a Christian, that you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The second truth in our text is that you have been called to be a saint. You have been called to be a saint. See this in our text, and come back to 1 Corinthians 1. See this in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, some people use the term saint to speak of a Christian from the past who is seen as especially pious, especially self-sacrificing, someone who has been canonized by a church council, declared a saint by a church council. However, this is unbiblical. The Bible teaches here in our text And elsewhere, 
that every Christian is a saint. From the very beginning of our Christian life. That word saint means a holy one. And this word saint goes hand in hand with the previous words in the verse about being sanctified in Christ Jesus. God's work of initial sanctification makes us a saint, a holy one, one who has been set apart unto God. Except here, we have the added thought that the Christian has been called by God to be a saint. Now, what Paul says here about being called by God relates to what Paul will say later in this chapter. Go down to verse 9. Notice his use of the word called. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Before being saved, we were not in fellowship with God. It was just the opposite. Our sin alienated us from God. But the Christian is told that God has called him into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now go down to verse 23 and see what's said here about being called by God. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's two very different responses to the gospel. He speaks in verse 23 about when some hear the gospel, it's a stumbling block for them. They see it as folly and they reject it. They don't heed it. He says, but, in verse 24, to those who are called, that is called by God, both Jews and Greeks, they see in the gospel Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Very different. Now go down to verse 26. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Here's that word call again. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So we see a connection between God's call in verse 26 and His sovereign, gracious choice in verse 27. The believer has been called. Verse 26. That's associated with God having chosen us for, for salvation. Now, a key passage on this divine calling is Romans chapter 8, verse 30. So I want you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. This speaks of the whole span of God's saving work in our lives. Verse 30. And those whom He predestined, that's those whom God predestined, that occurred before the foundation of the world. Those whom He predestined, He also called. 
And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So we see here that everyone whom God predestined before the foundation of the world, He then called. And everyone whom He called, He then justified. That helps us understand what Paul is talking about in our text. You can come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Understand that whenever Acts and the epistles speak of God's call, they speak of God's sovereign, effectual call. This divine calling is related to the gospel call. The gospel calls sinners to Christ for salvation. The gospel calls sinners to repent of their sin and believe in Christ. And the divine call is God's sovereign, efficacious call that comes through the gospel to the elect, to their heart, and actually brings the elect sinner to Christ in repentance and faith. No one is divinely called apart from the gospel call. In other words, no one is saved apart from hearing the gospel. Now, many hear the gospel call who do not answer that call. But everyone who is divinely called answers the call. Because the the divine call is inherently powerful to overcome the effects of depravity and to bring the sinner to repentance and faith in Christ. In the exercise of His sovereign pleasure, God issues the effectual call in the heart of the elect as they hear the gospel. Maybe not the first time. Maybe not the tenth time. Maybe not the hundredth time. But there is a time. In the exercise of His sovereign pleasure, God issues the effectual call in the heart of the elect as they hear the gospel, powerfully summoning the sinner out of spiritual death and blindness, and by virtue of the creative power of His word, imparting new spiritual life to that sinner giving him a new heart, along with eyes to see and ears to hear, and thus enabling him to repent and believe in Christ for salvation. This divine call is analogous to Christ's call to Lazarus. We read of it in John 11. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Uh, His body had been put in the grave. A stone had been rolled over it. Jesus tells those who were mourning there to roll away the stone, they say, why do that? There's already a stench. Jesus has them roll it away anyhow. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign, gracious Lord, He speaks to that dead body. And He says, Lazarus, come out. And that, that calling imparts life to Lazarus. He had no ability in himself to respond to that call. He was dead. But Christ's call was effectual. Christ's call was powerful. Christ's calling brought Lazarus from death into life. Lazarus came out, and Lazarus stood up, and he came out. And they took off those grave clothes. We have something even greater here that happened in your life, brothers and sisters. 
Paul says he's writing this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called. Called with that powerful, effectual, sovereign, gracious call. Called to be saints. God called you. You heard the gospel, but it didn't just go in one ear and out the other. It took root in your heart. And it sprung up to eternal life because the divine call came with the gospel call. The divine call of God came through the gospel and worked in your dead heart. That divine call brought you from death into life. In verse 9, Paul says that you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Our text says you were called to be saints. His powerful, sovereign calling made you a saint. You had been a sinner under God's condemnation. But in grace, He called you to the gospel and He called you effectually. And His call made you a holy one. One set apart. One delivered from the dominion of sin, consecrated to God for His service. This was the work of the call of God. The divine call is a call to come to Christ and to enter into all the spiritual blessings that one receives in Christ, including the blessing of being a saint. Every Christian is a saint by God's sovereign, gracious calling. And that term saint speaks of a holy position before God that cannot be improved upon. Now our response to this is to say, who am I to be called by God a saint? I'm totally unworthy to be called a saint. Empower me, O God, to walk in a new manner, a manner worthy of your calling. Now what is Paul getting at here in verse 2? He's getting at the believer's new identity in Christ. Our identity is no longer found in our sinful self. Now, as believers in Christ, our identity is found in Christ Jesus, in whom we are saints by grace. This is the second truth in our text concerning who you are as a Christian. You are one who has been called by God to be a saint. A saint by calling. The third truth in our text is that you are united with all who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are united with all who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now this does not mean that Paul is addressing this epistle not only to the Corinthians, but also to all those who call upon the name of the Lord. No, he's addressing this letter specifically to the church of God in Corinth. What Paul is saying here is that the Corinthian believers share the wonderful position in Christ spoken of in this verse with everyone in every place, whether Jew or Gentile, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ unites us with all believers all over the world. 
It unites us with the church universal. We see here that Christians are those who, quote, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, we read in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So when Paul speaks in Romans 10 about conversion after hearing the gospel message, he speaks of conversion in terms of calling on the name of the Lord. He quotes from the Old Testament, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Very similar terminology here in our text, that the Corinthian believers are together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to invoke His aid. Especially it means to call out to Him in faith for salvation. In faith we receive Him as our Lord. As Paul emphasizes in this verse, our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. As our Lord, Christ is our owner. Christ is our sovereign, to whom our total allegiance is immediately due, who reigns and rules over our lives. In conversion, we call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord and theirs. We bow before His Lordship. We submit our lives to His Lordship. Now, while God's calling is the divine side of our conversion, calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is the human side. Being called by God's sovereign grace is the cause. Calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is the result of the divine call. In our text, Paul speaks of the epistles' recipients being together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I believe Paul's point here is that the Christian in a local church belongs to something much bigger than the local church. We belong to a body that increasingly spans the globe. A body that has one Lord and Savior whom we confess. This is the third truth in our text concerning who you are as a Christian. And the fourth truth is that you are the recipient of God's grace and peace. You are the recipient of God's grace and peace. Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this time at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Christian greeting. Asking God to bless the people being greeted with His grace and His peace. Now it is significant that in these greetings that we find throughout the epistles, that grace always comes first. It's always grace before peace. It's never peace before grace. Grace always comes first. Grace and peace. You see, grace brings about peace. Peace is the result of grace. Now I want you to observe in verse 3 the source of this grace and peace. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace and mercy, this grace and peace only come from God. You will not find this grace and peace anywhere else. They come only from God. Now we see the deity of Christ here. For He is mentioned side by side with God our Father as the source of this grace and peace. Now the Christian has already received God's grace and peace from the Father and from the Son. What is grace? Grace literally means favor. And when the Bible speaks of God's favor, as it does here, it speaks of it as undeserved and freely given to sinners who deserve His wrath. We deserve the opposite of God's favor. We deserve God's condemnation. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor, freely given to us who deserve the opposite. And it is God's grace, in contrast to our works, that is the basis of God's saving work in our lives. A key verse to memorize is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9. through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. So there's a contrast between grace and works. We've not been saved by works. Instead of being saved by works, we've been saved by the grace of God. His favor freely given. His unmerited, undeserved favor freely given to those who deserve the opposite. By His grace, we have been saved. We read in John 1.16, for from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Wave after wave of grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Now, in this greeting, Paul mentions not only grace, but also peace. And just as the Christian has already received God's grace, the Christian has already received God's peace. Acts 10.36 calls the gospel, quote, good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you have the opposite of peace. Without Christ, you have enmity with God. Without peace, you have hostility with God, alienation from God, God's wrath. And the cause of this is our sin. Peace is the opposite. Now, peace is oftentimes thought of in our culture as the absence of hostility. But biblical peace is far more than the absence of hostility. Biblical peace is the presence of completeness, wholeness, soundness, well-being. The gospel is good news of a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ, a relationship characterized by completeness, wholeness, soundness, and well-being. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a peace that cannot be improved upon. It's a perfect peace. It's all of God's grace. It's achieved by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, in our text... Paul is asking God in this greeting to bless the Corinthian believers who have already received grace and peace from God. 
He's asking God to bless them with further grace and peace. Let's think about further grace. In the Christian life, God gives to the believer grace, which is an empowerment to serve, to obey, and please Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, the Apostle Paul speaks of this empowering grace. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And that empowering grace would certainly be in Paul's mind. And he says, grace to you. May God lavish His grace upon you. His grace to empower you to now walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what's this further peace? This further peace is peace of mind. An inner sense of well-being, even in the midst of trials and persecutions. Jesus promised this peace in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then again in John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this peace in Philippians 4.6-7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now you can't have this peace of mind if you don't first have peace with God. But when we were saved, God gave us this peace with God, and now because we have peace with God, we can have peace of mind. In the midst of the most trying tribulations, the most difficult challenges, the deepest suffering, you can have a peace that transcends anything that the world knows. A peace that comes from God that surpasses all understanding, that rules and reigns in your heart. Because first of all, you know you have peace with God. You know God is your Heavenly Father. And you know that, that you stand in His grace, you stand in His love, and that He's in sovereign control over all your circumstances. And he who predestined you also called you. And he who called you also justified you. And he who justified you will certainly glorify you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ and Christ Jesus our Lord. So God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, they give further grace. They give further peace to the believer. And Paul's praying for this. The gifts of grace and mercy are ones that our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ delight to give us who are in Christ. Well, we have seen this morning four truths concerning who you and I are as Christians, who we are as believers. We have seen, first of all, that that you have been sanctified in Christ. We've seen, secondly, that you have been called to be a saint. We've seen, thirdly, that you are united with all who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen, fourthly, you are the recipient of God's grace and peace. The Apostle speaks these truths before he starts instructing us how to live. 
He speaks these truths before he starts speaking of the changes that are needed in our lives. You see, these truths that he speaks of in our text are part of the Christian mindset that needs to be formed in us, that needs to be maintained in us. Christian living springs from these truths. The Apostle, at this point, has not yet told us what to do. Rather, he has given us truths that we are to seek to understand, truths that we are to believe, truths that we are to remain mindful of, truths for which we are to thank our Heavenly Father and thank our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you sometimes lose sight of these truths and just zero in on what we are to do as Christians and then become perplexed why you have so much difficulty doing what Christ has commanded. You have so much difficulty because you are putting the cart before the horse. If you lose sight of these truths that are yours in Christ Jesus, that God has sanctified you, He has set you apart, He has freed you from the dominion of sin, He has consecrated you unto Himself and unto His service, that He has called you, that you are a saint by calling, that He has joined you together with all in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the recipient of grace and mercy. If you lose sight of these truths, and you just zero in on what we are called to do, on what Christ commands us to do, you're putting the cart before the horse. There can be no progressive sanctification without initial sanctification. We're to be very mindful of what God has already done for us, that we might now progress in the Christian life. Now, I'm not saying that if you just believe the truths that we have studied, all will be well. The Christian life is a spiritual battle. We have enemies to fight against. The devil, the flesh, the world. We have, sanctific- we have sin that dwells in our heart still. Sanctification is not easy. So don't Take what I'm saying to mean, well, if you just believe these truths and keep them in mind, all will be well. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it is essential for Christian living that you understand these truths and that you take them by faith. How very privileged we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have been sanctified. We've been called to be saints. We've been joined together with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we are recipients of grace and peace from God, our loving Heavenly Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, has Christ set you free from the power of sin? Every one of us is born in bondage to sin. Every one of us is born with a sinful nature. And we sin by choice. And those choices show our nature. They show that at heart we are at rebel- in rebellion against God. We are not obedient to God's law. 
We are transgressors of God's law. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is the greatest commandment. Rather, we love ourselves above all other things. God is the one to be worshipped, but we've not worshipped Him. We've worshipped created things instead of Him. We have suppressed the truth of God. The truth of God should lead us to give thanks to God, to honor God, to worship Him, to obey Him. But we've suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. We've lived in sin. And this merits the eternal judgment of our holy God. And there's nothing that we can do to free ourselves from the penalty of sin or the power that sin has over us. You may have recognized some things in your life that need to change. You may have recognized some things that you know are displeasing to God. And you may have done everything that you can to change yourself into someone who is obedient to God and pleasing to God or a good person. But what you will find is we have no power to change ourselves. We have no power to walk away from sin and to obey and truly worship from the heart our holy God. And so, we are under God's condemnation with no source of hope in ourselves for salvation. But what we cannot do for ourselves, God does through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, who is holy and just, is also merciful and love. And in love, He sent His own Son, His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. Through a virgin conception, through the incarnation, Jesus Christ, the, the, the eternal Son of God, He became man. He became flesh. He became one of us. He became a part of our human race. And unlike us, He lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. Submitting to God's commands in all things. Fulfilling the law of God. Doing everything the Father gave Him to do. Even laying down His life at the cross as an atonement for sinners. Jesus Christ died upon a cross though He was innocent and righteous and holy. He died the death of a vile criminal. Why would He do that? Because He was providing salvation. Isaiah 53 foretold that the Lord's servant, the coming Messiah, that He would bear the sins of God's people. He would be chastised by God for the sins of His people. And this is the only way for us as sinners to be made right with the Holy God. It's for a substitute to pay the penalty in our place. The law of God pronounces a, a curse upon those who do not do everything written in the law. And Jesus Christ suffered that curse. He suffered the curse of God as He hung upon the cross, as He bore our sin, He bore our guilt. He paid the penalty for our sin. He gave up His life in death upon a cruel cross. His body was buried on the third day in fulfillment of the promises of Christ, in fulfillment of, of the Word of God. God the Father raised Christ from the dead on the third day in victory. The ultimate sign that Jesus of Nazareth is who He claimed to be, the eternal Son of God, the promised Christ, the promised Savior, who made full atonement for sin upon the cross. 
In His resurrection, He was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be Lord and Christ. He was declared to be the future judge of all mankind. God has appointed His Son to execute judgment. And there is coming a day of judgment. And no one will be able to escape that judgment except those who are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Except those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Apart from Christ, we'll be judged for our sin on that last day. And our mouth will be closed. There will be nothing that we can say as an excuse. We will not be able to justify our sin. But Jesus Christ will cast us into the lake of fire forever and ever for an eternal conscious punishment because that's what we deserve for our sins against the Holy God. And this is why you need Jesus as your Savior. This is why you need Jesus as your substitute. This is why you need Jesus as your Redeemer. And the salvation that God has provided in Christ is the most glorious salvation It's all of grace from beginning to end. And it's all to the glory of God. Jesus Christ commands all people, men, women, boys and girls, to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin, to forsake your sin, and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ as your Lord, to believe in Him as your Savior, to trust in Him as your Savior from sin, to submit your life to Him in faith. To follow Him as your Master. To follow Him as your Lord the rest of your days. The Bible promises eternal life to the one who believes in the Son. Oh, if you have not been saved, I urge you to now call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Acts 2.21, the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost how he quoted and applied the words of the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. You see, to believe the word of Jesus is to believe the one who sent him. To believe the word of Jesus is to believe the Father who sent him with that message. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, but has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't give you just a hope that perhaps when you die, everything will be okay. Perhaps when you die, you'll enter into paradise. Now the gospel says, turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says to those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have passed from death to life. You will not come into judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful Lord and Savior we have. And what a wonderful way that the Apostle Paul starts this epistle. He's going to be dealing in this letter with sin. He's going to be dealing with things in this letter that needed great correction. But he doesn't start there. He starts with our perfect position in Christ. As those who have been sanctified, 
called to be saints, joined with all in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord in arms, reminding us we are recipients of grace and peace. So there's hope that what Paul's going to talk about can be applied. There's hope that change can occur. There's hope for transformation. There's hope that we will be, as a church, conformed to the image of Christ, built up into the fullness of Christ. It's all because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have been seeing aspects of your glorious gospel, the gospel of Christ that centers on his death and resurrection, the death that purchased for us all the spiritual blessings of salvation. We thank you for the calling to be saints. We thank you that you have set us apart, that you have freed us from the dominion of sin, and have set us apart for your service. We are not worthy. This is all of your grace. Oh Lord, keep us mindful of these truths. Form, form these truths in us as part of our mindset. Form in us the Christian mindset that we might then live as you call us to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.